despite all the horror and everything that I went through, I wouldn't change it for anything. Because at the end of the day, I genuinely like the person that I've become. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Priori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Low Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. Today, I'm joined by podcast host, award-winning documentary filmmaker, mental health advocate, and an advocate for trauma survivors, Mr. Collier Landry. How you doing, sir? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. So well, the podcast, what's the name of the podcast? I host two different podcasts. I have the Survivor Squad that I host with Tara Newell of Dirty John fame, who I believe you've had on this program before. Yes. And I also host Moving Past Trauma, which is my other podcast, which is sort of goes into my like my life story. And then I talk to people and I have I have a YouTube channel, which is my main focus, which is I do lives every Wednesday and Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. I talk about a lot of true crime because that's sort of my background, right? Is I was thrown into that world, much like Tara. So that's why we have Survivor Squad, where we talk to individuals that have been through traumatic circumstances and what their process is and um, how they got through it. And moving past trauma is sort of the same thing, but I also offer analysis on things that I connect to very personally as a victim advocate, as a you know a childhood advocate and witness for my mother. I get into all of that, so that's sort of my my whole my whole thing, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, let's let's talk about it. You brought up your mom. Your mother was killed by your father when you were ten years old. Eleven. Yes. Eleven. Eleven. Um, Yes. So on New Year's Eve, 1989, I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of a scream. And then I heard two loud thuds. I heard, I counted about 12 footsteps as they walked down the hall. And I used to sleep with my door open as a child. And Me too. Yeah, I was just that kid, right? And I could see the feet in the doorway, which I believe were my father's, obviously. And I'm pretending to be asleep and I'm just looking in the corner of my eye, waiting for those, those feet to leave the doorway. He left and I ended up falling back asleep because I knew at that moment, like he had done something to her, but there was nothing that I could do. I mean, look, I was an asthmatic 11 year old little boy. My father was six foot four, 230, 40 pounds. You know, I was no match for him. Right. The next morning when I woke up, I ran straight to her bedroom and the whole bed was in disarray and I was immediately looking for blood. I walked downstairs and I confronted my father who was sitting on the couch with a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just gotten out of the shower and I said, where is my mother? And he didn't say anything. And so I said it to him again. I said, where is my mother? And he looks up at me with this very like cold, very blank look on his face and he goes, well, call your mommy took a little vacation. And then he proceeds to go into this whole diatribe about how my mother and him got into a fight the night before. That's what had woken me up, that the thuds that I heard were the sound of her purse hitting a wall. 
And keep in mind that this is New Year's Eve, 1989 in Ohio, right? So it is like the dead of winter. He then says my mother threw his purse at him, threw her credit cards at him, left the house without a coat, without anything, walked all the way down our driveway in the middle of the snow and freezing weather and got into a car that was waiting at the end of the driveway and left. And I knew right then and there that he was lying, obviously. And I was like, it's game on. So my father left that day and he'd gone to this whole diatribe about how we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. And I was like, yeah, that's not happening. So as soon as my father left, now at this time, my grandmother was also in the house and she was my father's mother. And she was very close to my mother, but she had come to join us for New Year's the night before. And I immediately went and grabbed the portable phone and I went upstairs and I had hidden my mother's closest friend's phone numbers in this like Santa Claus Garfield that I had. And I went through and I started calling all of them and I told them what happened. I said, you need to call the police. Police ended up coming out. They sent two uniform officers out. My grandmother, of course, is apoplectic about it. And she's hovering around me while I'm like trying to take the police through what happened. I didn't get off a very good explanation, but I did tell one of the police officers, I said, look, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him, which is what my mother used to say, because leading up to all of this, my father and mother were getting a divorce. About six months prior to that, my father had introduced me to his pregnant girlfriend. And I had no idea. Well, I had no idea she was pregnant at the time, but she was. And I had no idea that she was a girlfriend until I saw him kiss her. And then I saw a ring on her finger that was my mother's ring. And I told my mother about this after my father asked me to lie. And my father was a doctor. He was a narcissistic liar. He was very abusive to myself and my mother growing up. He was a rageaholic and he was, you know, very arrogant and very dismissive of us as a family. But I still thought that I grew up in a normal family, right? I was like, well, this must be what everybody goes through, right? Right. At that time, my mother, unbeknownst to me, my mother always knew about his girlfriends and his myriad of affairs, right? Yeah. And her deal with him was always, you know, you can do whatever you want, Jack, just don't involve our son. So the moment that he involved me, is the moment that it was like, okay, all bets are off, right? And that is what led to just this really, really bad, (laughs) bad situation. So the divorce was getting, you know, nastier and nastier. And in, in November of 1989, my mother says to me, look, if I ever go missing, your father probably had me killed. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she went into this whole thing, well, your father has mafia connections, your father has this, that, and the other. So that always stuck in my mind. So I had prepared this list just in case. So I called everybody. Like I said, the the officers came out and they didn't really believe me because I'm a kid, right? I wasn't even trying to appeal to them. I was just trying to like get somebody to do it. To have the wherewithal at like 11 years old to do all that's like kind of amazing in its own right, though. Because if my dad told me my mom went on a vacation when I was 11, I'd be like, oh, shit. All right. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay. She's like on a vacation. But like you to actually do all that stuff and for her to like actually plant seeds, like even that in itself probably is traumatic too. like knowing that your mom was telling you if anything ever happened to me, it was your dad. A hundred percent. So what happened is, is 
the next day, so this is like I said, New Year's Eve. So the next day, I call my my father leaves again. And I call the friends and I say, well, what happened? They say, well, we filed a missing persons report. And I'm like, okay, uh, I get it. But like something has happened to her. She's not just, didn't just go somewhere. Something has happened to her. She's either locked away in a shed somewhere or he's killed her. So what had happened is a detective by the name of Lieutenant David Messmore had seen the missing persons case. And this is New Year's Day, 1990 in a sleepy small town in Ohio. He's like, oh, this is interesting. Doctor's wife goes missing on New Year's. Okay. So he comes out to the house. And my grandmother answers the door. And she's, of course, just losing her mind. Like I said, she's apoplectic. He kind of charms his way in. Because I'm like, come on in, you know? Yeah, yeah. My grandmother goes to call my father. She's like, I'm going to get my son. He's going to sue you guys and blah, blah, blah. And it was at that time that I knew I had like, one small window of opportunity. And I said to him, my mother would never leave me. Something has happened to her. Give me your card. I go to school tomorrow. I'll get in touch with you. Give me his card. I go to school the next day because he leaves. You know, my grandmother shoes him out of the house. Okay, I'll come back later and talk to the doctor, right? So the next day I go to school, January 2nd, 1990, and I call him immediately. I get him. He comes out of the school and I begin to lay out the entirety of my life. And the relationship that my father had with my mother and everything that was going on and the abuse and all this stuff. And I say to him, look, when I go home and my grandmother's downstairs making dinner, I'm going to go upstairs to the crawl space and pull out the bookcases in the wall and look for my mother's body. I'm going to start looking for her favorite purse that she would never leave the house with. I'm going to look for her passport. I'm going to look for all these things to try to gather evidence. And he's kind of looking at me like I'm crazy, right? Because I'm, I'm like yeah. a kid. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like a Hardy Boys novel, right? Because I was so determined because I knew that my father had done something. I knew that my father had committed this crime. Yeah. And I started then observing my father because he would come home at night and he would have like, he had these strange cuts on his hands or on his arms. He had, his back was sore. So he asked me to rub his shoulders down with Ben Gay because he said he was moving heavy boxes. He had injured his like ankle or something. And he, you know, he didn't, he didn't feel good. And then his behavior started becoming more and more, you know, my father was a very, very violent person towards me and very aggressive, very like toxic masculinity in a way, you know, he would say things to me like your mother's turning you into a little faggot. My father would, we would play catch in the backyard and he would try to like hit me in my head or in my groin with a baseball. You know, he was just aggressive and February of 1989, my mother had gone to Taiwan and I was supposed to go with her, but I was so sick with my asthma, I couldn't travel. But my uh, mother wanted to adopt a little little girl from Taiwan. And so she had gone to do that. So I was left with my father for two weeks and it was complete hell. And he would chase me around the house calling me because I was chubby because I was taking asthma medications and I couldn't really exercise. And so you're on all these steroids. And so he would call me a stupid little fat boy and all these things, which I of course say in court. And my father had a long history of violence and he had this proclivity for violence, right? So I'm telling all this to the detective and I'm noticing how his behavior is going from this sort of very aggressive uh, human being to like, he started to behave very passively. 
I was playing a video game. So I had just gotten a Nintendo that year for Christmas and it was a fighting game. And he got upset because it was a fighting game and it was violent. And I was like, you're the person that calls me a little pussy for covering my eyes when there's a violent scene in a movie. And now all of a sudden you're abhorred by the fact that I'm playing like a Contra. On the video. Yeah. yeah. I'm playing street fighter and you're yeah, like, you whatever. It was just, it was ridiculous. Right. So I started noticing all these behaviors and I was reporting back to Dave Messmore when I would go to school, like I'd call him up or he'd come down to the school and I'd be asking him like, what's going on with the case? Do you have any leads, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until mid January that I found something that was really significant, which was my father needed to go to his office to get some medical records or whatever. He's like, do you want to come to the office with me? And I was like, well, I'm keeping my, I'm watching him like a hawk because right. <laughs> I'm reporting back to the police every day. I'm like, yeah, sure. And we go to his office and on the way back home, we stop at a gas station and my father goes into the gas station. I'm watching him and I start rummaging through his truck and I open up the center console and I find two photographs. One is of a house that I've never seen before. And the next one is of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is a house that I've never seen and she's connected to it. Yeah. And I go the next day to school. I tell Dave Messmore about this. And then I don't hear anything for a couple of days. They're just working on whatever. And at night, every night, my father's divorce attorney is over at the house. And he is, you know, talking to him and they're scheming on whatever they're doing. And my father says to me, and this is like a classic, like textbook narcissist thing. He says to me, this is around the 22nd of January. He goes, you know, Collier, I know it's been really hard on you and hard on us in the family because mommy has decided to leave us in such a state, just selfishly left us for, to, to our own devices to defend for ourselves. I have a medical conference coming up in Florida, and I think it would be a really great thing for us to have a father-son trip to go to Florida. And I knew right then when he said that to me, I wasn't coming back from Florida. Yeah. Two things that I knew already, which was my father was dangerous, and second of all, that every time we went to a medical conference in Florida, it was during the spring and it was like around spring break. So families could take their kids down there. You go to Bush Gardens, you go to right. the SeaWorld, whatever it is, right? And it's a whole event. They don't have it in the middle of January, like three minutes, three, you know, three weeks after Christmas break. They're not just having some convention like down in Florida. It was ridiculous. Oh my and, gosh. Um, and I told Dave Messmore and I was like, you got to get me out of this house. I'm not coming back from Florida and he's going to do something to me. He's on to me, you know, because I could tell by his behavior, he was, you know, acting more and more like he was under duress. I could tell that he was getting more desperate. And I thought, okay, this is it. Like I'm cooked. And on January 24th, 1990, I woke up to two agents from child services. They said, you got 20 minutes to pack a bag. I packed one for my sister and I. I said, can I take my dog? And they said, we'll come back for your dog. And I never saw my dog again. As I come downstairs, there is a whole scene out of like a movie. It is police officers. It is men and women in white lab coats, all kinds of little devices. They are executing a search warrant on our home. I had already known that my life was like, was over. <laughs> you know, that my life was, was altered because my mother was missing. I believe she was dead. So I already knew that I was dealing with that reality. But I think at that point, that was it. I was like, yeah, we've crossed the Rubicon now. 
Like my, my mind is so blown by this story. The internet sleuth in me is like, oh my God, like this story is amazing. Then I'm talking to somebody who actually lived through it. So you got to think of like the push and pull of people that actually receive this story. Like you said, true crime, like who would want to talk to you in true crime? Yeah, exactly. I'm also thinking about like to be 11 years old, right? And you also, you said you have a, a sister. How old was your sister? She was three. So she was just a, like a little kid. You know, I didn't speak hardly any English, you know, so I would speak like Chinese to her or whatever. I mean, she spoke some English, but she was confused too. Who'd you guys stay with after that? So I was taken then at that moment, coming down the stairs by child services. They take me to the principal of my school's house and they're like, you know, you're probably not going to go to school today. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. And I remember that uh, a couple hours later, you know, I'm there and this caseworker shows up from children's services and she sits down she's like, Hey, you know, I'm a caseworker, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't know what a caseworker was, but I knew that it wasn't a good thing to have a case. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm processing all this as a kid going, because you're kind of in a situation like that. I guess I've never really talked about this, but you're very torn in a situation where you're doing the right thing. You're doing what you know is the right thing, right? You're actively trying to help find your mother. You're, you know that your father did this, but you're also dealing with this overwhelming guilt of the fact that you sort of feel like you've created all of this. You're the one that reached out to the police, got the police there. You're the one that, that has been giving all the information to the police. You're doing all this because you're doing it with the best intentions, right? And you want to find your mother and you want to find out what happened to her and you want someone to be held accountable for that. But you're also, it's like this cognitive dissonance, right? Of like, you're feeling guilty because even though you're not involved in her disappearance, you haven't done anything wrong. You're still in a situation where you're trying to really come to terms with what's happening. And for me, you know, she's telling me this, I'm your caseworker. I'm like, there's just like no going back. And that night I have like, what is the worst asthma attack I've ever had in my life? And I thought I was going to die because I had left the house in such a hurry. I didn't bring like my proper breathing machine or anything. Like I wasn't have my stuff. And it's like, my house is now a crime scene, right? Right. Yeah. That nebulizer is gone. Yeah, exactly. I can't go in there. And um, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to die that night. And I somehow make it through the night and we go to the hospital where I meet a family friend who's a doctor, he's a cardiologist, and he gives me a breathing treatment. He gives me a steroid injection and they kind of, I can breathe, right? But I remember walking into the hospital lobby. There was a lot of people in there. And back in the day that when they sold newspapers, there used to be a thing called an honor box where you would put the quarter in you, the honor only taking one newspaper. I remember they usher me past this, like I'm walking in that direction. It kind of yanks me in the different direction. Right. And I go, you know, obviously I get stabilized, but I kept remember, kept thinking like, why did they pull? Like, why would that happen? And that was when they told me in this room, you know, after I took this breathing treatment that Lieutenant Mesmer found your mother and she was dead. Like you talk about cognitive dissonance, right? It's very, very difficult to describe what it's like to 
deal with this wave of emotions of you hear this and you go, okay, well, I'm not crazy. What I knew in my heart was true actually happened and I'm not crazy. It's weird because as children, right, I try to put my mind back to like when I was 11. Do you ever feel like a part of you was just hoping that you were wrong? Yeah, you start, sure. There's this like this cognitive dissonance that you're going through where you're like, you realize that what you knew, like, okay, you have this overwhelming sense of relief that like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like I wasn't gaslighting myself. Like this really did happen because they found her. She was dead. This really did happen. I'm not crazy. And then on the flip side, you go through this overwhelming emotions and this grief, this enormous amount of grief starts cascading down upon you because you realize that what you thought had happened was really true. And it's a really hard thing to articulate. It's something I hope no one ever has to go through because it feels awful because you're struggling with this dichotomy of emotions and well, myriad of emotions, really you have relief and you have grief and you're trying to straddle both of those. And so that for me was, is still the hardest thing to think about is still the hardest part because then again, it's like, okay, there's another nail that's going in the coffin, mind the pun that everything that you knew this past 11 and a half years, 12 years, almost that you knew, knew of your life and your hopes, dreams, goals, everything that you thought was going to be your life has completely changed. And now you don't even know what's going to happen to you or your sister. And I ended up testifying at the grand jury a couple of days later, uh, no helping, shit. helping to secure my father's indictment. And I thought that my family because I had done that would somehow look upon me as like, okay, well, you're doing the right thing. We support you. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. In fact, my mother's side of the family, my mother's sister told me, we cannot take you in because you look like your father. And my father's side of the family didn't want anything to do with me because they were basically like, well, you created this mess <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, that was the consensus of, well, you ratted on your father. You called the police. You're the whole reason this happened. Yeah. Which is absolute lunacy, right? So I went into the foster care system. Which Are is, you kidding me? They didn't want to take you in because you looked like your dad. That's correct. And What's I, your relationship like with them now? I mean, it's non-existent. Not, not for me, not trying. But when I had come out with my podcast like a year or two ago, God, I remember my cousin had reached out to me and he goes, I listened to your podcast and I heard you talk about that. And he goes, I just want you to know that I remember that conversation with my mom and my dad. And you're absolutely right. That's exactly how they felt. I was there when they called you and told you that. So you're not making that up. And I was like, well, thank God I don't feel crazy. Yeah. Which Even like you touched on before though, too, like after that detective comes and tells you that sentence, your brain's just rewired for the rest of your life right? Pretty much. And then it's like, in my heart of hearts, I, I did the right thing. Now I'm kind of feeling like I didn't do the right thing. And now no one in my family is going to accept me. Now I have to go into foster care. So this is what I get for doing the right thing. Correct. Let me tell you something about foster care. Foster care fucking sucks. <laughs> and the people, stories are true. I always say, like, I was a good looking white kid. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine. And it's like, 
you know, the way that you are treated by your foster family, like, oh yes, it's all roses and whatever. No, you're a guest in their house. <laughs> and they remind you if you do anything wrong, that you cannot be a guest in their house and they'll feed you to the wolves. And my foster parents were very unkind in that manner. It's something I've only started recently talking about, but yeah, that's how I was treated. It really sucked. The only thing that, that was redeemable because they wanted to adopt my sister, but they didn't want to adopt me. So they did let right. me have a relationship with Dave Messmore and his wife. So after the trial was over, I spent a lot of time with them and I asked them to adopt me. He was a police officer who arrested my father. And also to sort of finish that story, what had happened was, is that that house that I found the photographs of is where they found my mother's body. Oh. My father had dug up the basement floor and had buried her body underneath the basement floor, covered it all back up, had carpet installed, indoor-outdoor carpeting, had bookshelves in built, and had it all repainted. And if it wasn't for like one little paint splatter on the wall, they wouldn't have started digging. Or not, uh, concrete splatter when they were executing the search warrant. And they found it in, you know, this house was in another state. It was in Erie, Pennsylvania. I lived in Ohio. So my father, psychopath that he is, had decided that he was going to bury my mother underneath the basement of his new home that he was going to move into with his mistress. And probably myself and my sister too. Oh my God. And start a whole new life. Which to me, you know, when you talk I could about cry, like, man, I could cry hearing this. I almost just started crying now. The only thing that just keeps coming back to my mind is you're a kid. Yeah. I'm now 12 years old. Yeah. You're 12 years old. That's the hardest thing for me to grasp is I remember when I was 12 years old, I don't think any part of me would have been able to handle anything that you went through, let alone your mom's missing and now it's a mystery, right? Then it gets solved. And then no one in your family wants to take you in. And then now you're in foster care. I'm sure they put you in a room and then they had people just come and stare at you for like a couple hours a day. It's like, oh, these people are going children shopping and I'm just fucking sitting here. And then I can't, I just, I, I, the fact that you're even a functional member of societies, uh, like statistically is like an outrageous accomplishment. It's definitely weird. Yeah, I had somebody say that to me, a therapist last year, they were just like, they had gotten to know me. They'd heard the podcast and they said, the fact that you're not like under a bridge in East LA with a needle in your arm, curled up in a ball. And they're like, nobody would blame you if that was your life. If that's what you decided your life was going to be, Fuck no. nobody would blame you. Better be like, yeah, he had a hard road to hoe. It was a lot, but she's like the fact that you're here and you're walking around and you can put two sentences together and you have this seemingly normal life, you know, and I've got my flaws. I mean, we're all human, right? Of but, course, yeah. but I've somehow become this functional person. And the fact that matter is, is like everybody that was involved in the situation for the most part, didn't want to be adults. They didn't want to take responsibility or accountability. My father, of course not. My family, of course not. It was a fiasco. I talk about like the stages of this and I, you know, on my podcast, like on, on moving past trauma, I read letters from my father to expose like narcissism and gaslighting because I have like four or 500 letters from him over the years because I maintained a relationship with him. Right. Right. Because I wanted to do something with this story, which I ultimately did. Just thinking back when I think about it, of just having to like be the adult. Like I didn't have a childhood, you know? 
I was, I had sort of a childhood and then I, then I was an adult, like officially like you're an adult. And you think about kids that are victims of child sexual abuse, oftentimes, and like domestic violence or having to defend a parent against another parent. Like they're put in positions where they grow up really quickly. You know, I grew up overnight when I do speak to people who have grown up that way. Like we have this very kindred spirit because if you haven't been through it, you don't know, and you don't want to be through it either. I always say on the survivor squad, we're all a part of a squad that no one really wants to be a part of, but we're all a part of the survivor squad, right? We're all a part of this sort of club that nobody like, oh yeah. Like, you know, when I think back to like, I look at like true crime, right? Because I got into the world of true crime because I was thrown into it. Like I was that world. So I made a film in, uh, it came out end of 2018, you know, it got big during the pandemic. It's called a murder in Mansfield. It's directed by two-time Oscar winner, Barbara Koppel. It's a documentary. And in that I go back to my small town and I take a look at the consequences of the violence and what, and all the ancillary characters that were involved and the ancillary victims to examine like, what's the true cost of violence of this nature. Right. And then I confront my father in prison because I spent my entire life trying to figure out why my father murdered my mother. And so when you watch the film, it's the first time I ever asked him that question. 26 years of a relationship with my father to get to that point, right? And hundreds of thousands of phone calls. And yeah, phone Did you visit him at all when he was? Yeah, 100%. I used to go into the prison when I was trying to set the sort of table to be able to do a film there, I would go into his prison where he was at inside the prison and teach prisoners how to use Final Cut Pro. And I helped them pick out their their packages and all this stuff, like an audio and Photoshop work, because I got into everything that I do creatively because I wanted to tell this story. I went to music school. Music was like my talent because I grew up in the same small town that all this happened. I was adopted by a wonderful family, the Ziegler's eventually out of foster care when I was 13. I went to music school and then I dropped out halfway through music school because I wanted to just move to LA and figure it out. And I was like, I've got to do something with this story. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to figure it out. I became a filmmaker and I pursued that and I got Barbara Koppel and you know, Barbara's won two Academy Awards for documentaries. I got John Morrissey, who did American History X, who became a really good friend of mine. And American History X was a film that had such an impact on me. It's still one of my top five favorite films of all time. I think it's a masterpiece. And it's about the consequences of violence. I remember seeing that in the theater and saying, whoever did that film, I want them to help me tell my story. And we became friends. And uh, he involved Barbara Koppel. And and that's how A Murder in Mansfield was made. But I pursued this whole career of becoming a filmmaker with the one intention of getting that answer to the question of why did you murder my mother? I'm not going to ask you for the answer because I think people should go and watch it. Sure. Um, and, and be able to experience kind of what you had to experience. His mistress. Yeah. Was that child born? Yeah. So I have a half sister that was born 12 days before my father was arrested. Holy fucking shit. dude! She's grown up her whole life without knowing her father. Do you guys have any communication with each other? So she was going to be in the film, but she decided not to. You know, I think a lot of it had to do with her mom, which I also wanted to be involved in the film. In the film, I wanted everyone who could be a part of it to be a part of it, to be able to tell their side of the story. Because I looked at, you know, my father's girlfriend 
she was young when all this was, she was like 28, 29, something like that. She was a victim too. You know, a lot of people obviously castigated her, chastised her for her. Oh, she knew about my it. Father. Yeah. And she says she didn't. I, you know, I don't know. My father is a psychopath and a manipulator and a narcissist. So they're very good at gaslighting people and manipulating situations. So she might not have known about my mother and she had nothing to do with her death. Right. I wanted her to be able to share her side of the story just so it could shed some light on that. So it would maybe take some people's focus off that, but she didn't want to. And so, and then my sister and I really haven't spoken since then. That's been like, you know, six years or whatever. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And, you know, a lot of my family has a lot of issues with me talking about it, doing a podcast about it, obviously making the film, but you know, it's my own journey and this is what I was handed, you know? And, and like I said, I was thrown into this like true crime world and a murder in Mansfield, even though it has that title. It is not a true crime film. It is about the human side of the consequences of violence and the real impact. And one of the great things is in the film is I'm really, really vulnerable. I'm very authentic. And you see a side. And that also plays out in my podcast and all of the stuff that I do is my genuine authenticity when talking about, if I'm talking about another case or I'm talking about a survivor or a victim's point of view, it all comes from this knowing what it's like to go through it. You know, yeah. one of the big cases right now is the Murdoch case and the son coming out and he's the surviving son. And I share insight into that of like, look, because people of course are coming after him saying, oh, he's, he gets what he deserves. I'm like, he was a kid. Like yeah. he's like 19, but he doesn't have anything to do with his mother getting murdered and his brother getting murdered or all these other shenanigans or his father stealing money. He has nothing to do with that. And he's just trying to process. And here's what he's going through because he has a relationship with his father too. And he's got yeah. to deal with it in his own way. And it's no one else's opinion. No one else gets to tell him how he wants to carry on his life. You know what I mean? And somebody like me, I can just offer advice and say, hey, this is what it's like, man. You know, but I offer that unique perspective into what victims and what families and what survivors of violent crime go through. And I try Absolutely. to approach everything in that lens whether it's through Survivor Squad, whether through it's through my YouTube channel and Moving Past Trauma. When I speak publicly, it's all through that lens of like, this is what it's like to go through this. Because Absolutely. I've been through it so people don't have to. It's like psychologists will go to school to learn about what I've been, like they're oh, like- Oh yeah, oh, you're a psychiatrist's dream. But it's like they're, you know, people say, well, you know, you should listen to a psychologist. I'm like, you understand that a psychologist goes to school so they don't have to go through what I went through that I had yeah. to learn the hard way. Like that's why people go to school for this. Yeah, so they learn about this so they don't have to go through it. Right. So they study people like me. They talk to people like me. They have me participate in surveys and in studies because they want that perspective. Right. So it's interesting to see how people sort of like try to box you in. And then you're like, well, no, I can speak on this with absolute authority. I want to ask you this question, making a film, doing a podcast, especially about trauma, your trauma personally, is it tough to kind of have to relive this moment, this part of your life so much and so frequently? Because like even you coming on here and having this conversation with me, you know, I'm reading the notes before we do the interview. I was like, I don't want to fucking make this guy relive this goddamn thing. Even in my mind, I'm like. Oh, shit. But I have, you know, 9,000 questions I want to ask this guy. But the last thing I want to do is like, oh, man, like I don't know. It's interesting because it's a double-edged sword, right? It is a lot. 
It's a lot to talk about, but it's also my life. It's like asking me, what do you eat for breakfast? Or what was it like growing up? You know, you ask your friends, like, what, is, what was it like growing up as a child, right? And I tell you, this is what it was like for me. I mean, it sucks that this, I don't have the, you know, there's a film that came out like the late nineties called As Good As It Gets. Oh yeah. It's one of my favorites, Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson, when they're in the, like, he's in like the sob or whatever and, and, or Volvo and they're sitting there and Greg Kinnear is going to tell the story about getting the, the, the wad of sweaty money from his dad and Helen Hunt's like, yeah, well, we all have these stories. And he goes, no, he's like, some people have happy stories, beautiful stories, picnics on the lake, good times, noodle salad, just nobody in this car. <laughs> and I always think about it like good times, noodle salad, like some people and God bless them because that is amazing. They don't have these stories. They're not affected by this. And I think that that's one of the things that gets, when I look at like true crime or victims or people who are doing any kind of advocacy that have been through this type of thing, a lot of people seem to forget is when they're dissecting and they're analyzing these cases and they're going to be the one that internet sleuth and everybody that wants to solve cases. It's like, they totally forget about the people who were impacted the most, which is the families and the victims, right? And especially, you know, when you see the commodification of it, stories being told, podcasts being made, film and television shows being made, people making careers off of other people's misery. And then you look back and you realize in the whole daisy chain of people writing and telling these stories, at no point is the victim or the person who has gone through the most tragedy whose stories you are exploiting ever paid a dime. I said the same thing. I'm sure you remember this like years ago. There was this huge podcast called Serial. Yeah. And I remember like listening to this and I was like, yeah, like this is like really entertaining, but I'm like, that girl's really dead. And this like lady's going to try and make me like feel like this guy should be exonerated in a way. I thought of it two ways. I said, if he gets exonerated, she needs to give him $5 million. Right. (laughs) You know, I was like, because this is wild that you get to just stay out here and do all these interviews for this thing. This girl's dead. This guy's still in jail. And like, you're going to get a season two. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know a lot about the Adnan Syed case. And I, so I yeah. really can't comment on that. I do know the serial is a ridiculously successful podcast. I think it's something the last time I checked, like four or 500 million downloads, billion, like half a billion, maybe even a billion uh, as the case, you know, he was exonerated. Like he was released from prison last year. There's talk about him going back and this, that, and the other. But again, one of the things that I thought of right when that happened is yes, of course you want to see someone who is innocent of a crime or who has been wrongfully convicted, exonerated. Like absolutely you want to see that. But right. at no point during this jubilation of him getting out of prison and all of this like wonderful things that happened and everybody, all these true crime podcasters are talking about it. Like this is the next big thing. Oh my God, it's so amazing. At no point did anyone stop and say, yeah, but are we going to look for the real killer then? Like what about yeah. her family? What about her brother who literally was notified, I guess the day that they were going to release him and was like, I didn't even get a chance to speak to the judge. And he felt very rug pulled by the situation and granted, and then everybody would kind of turn to like excoriate him. Well, you're not happy for Adnan. He's like, I don't care. He's like, I'm kind of about my sister. Like, yes, of course I don't want an innocent person in prison, 
But I also don't want people to be like, oh, well, we, we saw this and now we can just move on and not looking for other suspects because he doesn't get justice. And now they're re-traumatized by this. There's a lot of interest in, in, in these true crime cases and people that are out there. And they don't think about the fact that when they make these public cases, when they talk about this, they are re-traumatizing the victims. They bring it up and it's very solipsistic in a lot of ways. And they make a ton of money off of it. I mean, there's empires that have been created on true crime podcasts. Empires. <laughs> Just backing up Brinks trucks in their driveways. And they're talking about the misery of other people. And they're not somebody like, I would much rather hear from somebody like myself than someone else who's just had this wonderful, wonderful, happy Midwestern life of growing up and everything is good. And you know, we love animals and we love dogs and we love people. And, oh, we're going to tell these stories that really fascinate us. I'd rather hear from somebody who's like, yeah, I've been through all the shit. Here's the real impact of this. I'm the same way. I didn't start talking about mental health and stuff along that line until like I started having severe panic attacks and sure wanted to take my own life because I, I was like, you know, a being dead is going to be better than having to deal with this every single day and have everybody tell me I'm fine every five minutes when I know that I didn't sleep last night. I haven't ate in two days. And all I know is that being dead was the best option in my life at that time. And it's so sad when you think about that. By the way, I'm not here to like roast you know, uh, or chastise anyone who makes money. Ah, I hear you, but you, we got to call not, a spade saying, a spade. So I'm not saying that. And and they've a lot of these people have done like amazing work too, because they started out one way and then they're like, okay, now I'm going to do more advocacy now that I've made all this and I've like realized the impacts of what I'm doing. Now let me help people. So that's wonderful. And so that's not, I'm not here to, to say, I mean, there are some people that are still scumbags, but there's a yeah. lot of people that are doing now using that as a platform to do really good work. I want to mention that. But, you know, one of the things that, that is interesting is I was interviewed last week on a show and this guy who was a psychologist and somebody was like, oh, you should have him on your show. He had said something and this was a live thing on YouTube and we were talking about the Alex Murdoch case. Yeah. And he was talking about Alex Murdoch and he goes, these people are mentally ill and this is what mentally ill people do. And I let him finish. You know, It's not my show. I'm a guest, right? But I was right. like, hold on, man. I was like, you can't say that. Like, you literally can't say that. Not all people who struggle with mental illness commit violent crimes. They don't no. annihilate their entire families. They don't turn to self-harm. They don't do things. They suffer in silence. That is so wrong to like rope people in. And I've been on podcasts and talked to people. And there was a time when, when I thought things were really dark for me. And I contemplated like, what if I took my own life? What would that look like? And I very quickly decided not to do that because I realized that for me, that wasn't the answer, right? But for some people that are in these situations, I feel like they're, I mean, it's so weird because there's still like the stigma around it. Like, oh, you're going into counseling. Oh, you're in mental health. Oh, you're, it's like, yeah. So <laughs> like, these are conversations that need to be had. And these are conversations that I feel are so necessary because somebody mentioned to me one time, they said, you're not seeing the people that you really impact because those are the people you don't hear yes. from. Yep. Like, and those conversations. And so when I have people, like I said, I read my father's letters from prison, right? Which exposes a lot of narcissism, gaslighting, manipulation, all of these traits that are just psychopathy. And people say, you know, I'm so glad I discovered your podcast because you read these letters. I learned so much about my own relationships, whether it be with a lover, whether it be with a father, a parental figure, whatever it is. I've learned so much from listening to you talk about it. 
It's like, I wished when I was going through all of this, I could literally pop on a podcast or listen to somebody or go on YouTube and find somebody talking about this because I would know, my God, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be okay. Because I didn't have that. I had to sort of just figure it all out, right? Because I didn't have any family support system at that time. I sure as hell didn't have any support system from the court system. You know, I had had the detective and his wife who were involved in my life. Like they were supportive, but- Are they still around? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they are absolutely. And so every time I go back to Ohio, I make sure to see them, and we talk, and we send text messages and things like that. And I'm very close with my adopted family too. So there is a, a lot of that support system which came later, right? But in the thick of it, it wasn't there when I needed right. it the most. And and I think about the ways that me talking about these things, and because you know, a lot of people, of course, will also come after you and be like, "Well, just get over it. Just get over it. You need to just talk about something else." It's like. Are you out of your mind? This is my cross to bear. And this is something that I'm talking about. And, you know, you would think by offering this type of information or sharing this type of thing that you would get a lot of overwhelming support. But the truth is, you don't like, yes, yes, you have a lot of people that are very supportive, that are very grateful for the work that you're doing. But you have this whole other community of people that are just there to hate on you, just to write really nasty things to you. I get lots of nasty comments and emails from people all the time. I get them too. Uh, just like if I ever post anything about like me going through panic or bipolar, I get d- DMs all the time just being like, yo, stop being a fucking bitch. I'm just like, oh, all right. You know, I'm like, that That was a nice one. But I try to just be like, you know, what? for every one, there's 10 nice ones. Absolutely. And you just got to keep on trucking and doing what you're doing. Right. And, and sharing that message. Because again, it's about the people. It's not the people you do see or you do hear from. It's the people that you don't see that are impacted. And that always keeps me continuing that conversation but it's a lot i mean you asked earlier is it a lot to tell the story is a lot yeah it's a lot but it's also just my life and how i know it every episode of every show of every time that i talk about this you are witnessing me on another step in my journey of processing all of this you know my father is turned 80 this year i'm going to eventually have to process when he passes away which is also going to be a thing because i still love my father I don't like him. <laughs> I don't think he's a good person. He's not a good role model, but he's my father and I love him, you know? And you see this in the film and it was something like the New York Times interviewed me, you know, when the film came out a few years ago and the guy says to me, he goes, you know what, man? He's like, there's three seconds in the film that tell me everything I need to know about you. Exactly who you are, what your character is, who you are as a person in three seconds in the film. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, do you remember the part when you're in the prison with your father And after he tells you all this stuff and you get up and you hug him and you say, I love you, pop. And he goes, I don't know a single person who would ever say that to that man, but you said it. And I was like, oh, I forgot about that. He goes, yeah. He's like, like, you're just responding to like, you're just saying it. You're just mic'd up and you just say it. You're not trying to show off, literally just rolls off your tongue. It's so pure because you realize that that's what you're dealing with. He's like, that just tells me everything I need to know about you as a human being. And I was like, wow, that's really, it's really powerful. Yeah, it is. And humbling that somebody realizes that or recognizes that in me. That's just my reality. It's just who you are. And I think that that's the most important thing when you're talking about mental health or going through challenges is that vulnerability. And people, you know, be like, oh, so-and-so has you know, oh, yeah, they have all this money, so they don't have any problems. Oh, man, come off it. Like, I mean, I wish I had a ton of money. I don't, but you know what I mean? Okay, you're a, you're a New Yorker. I'm assuming you were rooting for the Jets. I watched Hard Knocks this season, and one of the guys, he got paid. He was a defensive tackle, I believe, and he says, 
So you got a big paycheck and he says, you know, one of the things I heard is that money doesn't make you one way or another. It makes you more of the person that you already are, right? And so I think of people who are, you know, there's plenty of wicked people with money and there's plenty of beautiful people with money. And then there's people that have a lot of problems because those problems or they go into it thinking, well, if I just had X, I will be better. And then you have X and you realize I'm still not better and how that works for them. And so you see people who go through those challenges and it's so easy to be like, well, they had the world and they, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it too. Like, Oh, what are they? They don't have any problems. They've got a $300 million yacht. It's like, no, they got a lot of problems or they have no problems whatsoever. But people going through those real things, like those material things in life are not what makes you happy. It's what makes you happy internally. If you can't get happy, whether that's something that is a chemical issue going on, whether that is something just, you know, a crippling anxiety of just, or stress, or, you know, becoming a prisoner of your own creation. Mm. It's one of the things like when I think about, you know, my podcast has grown and my channel on YouTube grows very slowly, right? In a way, but I'm like, I'm very grateful. The way that it grows, it's a grind and it's a hustle. And I would love to have, tons more subscribers than I have now. You know, I've got like 33,000, which is great because six months ago, I had six, you know, but I see everything that I'm doing is being very sustainable because I look at it and I go, I'm going to be doing this for the next 10 to 15 years, probably. And if I'm not doing something that really makes me happy or that I'm really genuinely interested in, that is not sustainable. And I have so many friends I've worked in entertainment for over 20 years or been in the been in some form, whether it's in front of the camera, or behind the camera, in the entertainment industry for 20 years now. And I have friends who you, you look at them and they go, wow, they have an amazing life. They have this thing. And they're like, Collier, I'm fucking miserable. Because yeah. all I do is do this, that I'm not happy. This is not what I want to be doing. This is not what I want to be talking about. This is not who I want to be working for. And it's very, very real. It's very mental health and the struggles that people go through. So it's always, you know, grass is always greener on the other side, but that doesn't make it true. Hey, listen, I mean, people that we look up to in the celebrity world, you see these people die all the time, whether it be drug related, they take their own life. Like you said, it's not always daisies when you have money. I wanted to ask you about the letters to your dad. I know you write letters to your dad. Have you ever like wrote to your mom like as a healing mechanism? No. I had a friend who... uh, That's a great idea. Wow. He didn't lose his mom the way you did, but he used to write to his mom all the time because he used to say, Danny, I see her in my dreams all the time. Yeah, I do too. He he was like, Danny, I see her all the time. So if I have a dream where I see her, I write it so it stays in my subconscious. And I hope that the next time I see her, since it's in my subconscious, we kind of get to have a conversation about it. He's like, and sometimes, you know, dreams are spotty and they're all over the place. But he's like, anytime I have a dream about my mom, I write to her about like the dream and stuff. So I was always wondering because. You're writing to your dad. I said, I, w- I wonder if he writes to his mom. I'm a big journaler guy. Journaling is great. I, you know, I've gotten away from it over the years. It's funny you mentioned that journaling because I literally opened my drawer yesterday. I found my journal. I was like, I need to yeah, back into this. 
get, get away in a way that I can just really work some things out. Cause I, I love journaling and I got away. It's the best that. because like there'll be times where I'm like thinking some of the most wild shit. And sometimes I needed to either say it out loud or write it down for me to be like, yeah, all right, we're going to be all right. You know, I was like, now that I'm seeing it, like we're going to be cool. No, I use this a lot because. Oh it, yeah, for um, sure. You know, I use it like the 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 voice memos and the you know voice to text and Apple Notes. I use all the time, so I do journal. I, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying because you have these thoughts, even that you want to relate to someone, right? Of like, this is what I'm going through today, and I feel like, you know, I'm pretty vulnerable on my podcast. I need to be more vulnerable. I was very vulnerable on my TikTok, and I have a pretty large TikTok following, but I need to be sharing more of these mental health tips because I think about it all the time. You mentioned about my journaling or writing something to my mom. You know, I was swimming yesterday to try to loosen up the back and it hit me and I don't know why it hit me because I thought about it earlier in the year, but her birthday is coming up September 28th. And I realized that I am now older than she was when she was killed. Wow. And how many people can say I've survived longer than my parents? (laughs) Not many. It's wild. So I'm just like, man, that's. That's a lot to think about. It's a very unique milestone for anybody to have, kind of. Yeah, it's a mind fuck. <laughs> it's a mind fuck. That, that's for sure. First off, I just wanted to say, again, thank you so much for like coming on and just hanging out with me and being so open and vulnerable with us and, and the audience. Sure. And Tara was fantastic, too. I mean, we talked about Dirty John for almost two hours. You know, so, you know what I mean? So you guys have just been so fantastic with us. The one question that I did want to ask was people hear trauma, right? And, you know, like how there's bipolar, there's bipolar one, bipolar two, right? So it's like, we have like categories we could put you in anxiety disorder, panic disorder. We have a category you could put you in. Is there a middle ground in trauma? How is trauma treated on the base level? Like, do people get like separated? Like this person went through sexual abuse the verbal abuse like you you losing your mom losing a loved one is there like different kinds of like diagnosis that people get or is it something that it's all kind of generalized still and then people kind of branch out so i'm not obviously not a healthcare professional not a psychologist just a guy who's been through a lot of shit so i think there's you know there's complex ptsd there's ptsd etc etc like when I talk about this a lot and Tara and I mentioned this a lot on our show too and separately as well is trauma is kind of relative, right? Because someone who has had the, you know, good times, noodle salad life, right. something traumatic might have maybe, you know, getting into a car accident. You know what I mean? It's not that anything happened to them, but they got into a car accident. They got T-boned or whatever. And that scared them. They saw their life flash before their eyes. Right. Where somebody like me has been through, like, I literally saw my life flash before my eyes because I heard my father murder my mother. And then I was thrown into a position where I was in danger for three and a half weeks of he might kill me too. And then danger zone of like, okay, now you're living someplace that they might throw you out. Like, you know what I mean? I was under constant duress, right? And, I still but, can't believe But it's it. also, I, I, I know it's wild, but it's yeah. like, I tell people, they're like, well, you know, they'll be become very apologetic. They'll be like, well, my trauma is not like yours. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, like really nobody's trauma is like mine. Your trauma is not like mine. My it's all relative. It's all subjective to like who you are and what you're feeling, what your life experiences are. And it's like, just because I've been through some horrific, crazy circumstances that hardly anybody has ever gone through and thank God they haven't. 
doesn't discount how somebody feels or what they go through or what traumatizes them. Like if I hear loud sounds or yelling, I I get very triggered by that. I don't ever really talk about that, but I do notice myself getting, I'm, and I'm become more and more aware of it as I talk about trauma that I like, oh, I feel this way because I heard this or, or something happened. But I think that like somebody who, let's say, is, you know, is a veteran who served our country, right? And who, you know, dealt with explosions and how that fireworks can be triggering for them. You know, Tara gets very triggered because if somebody comes up and gives her a hug or grabs her or puts their hand on her waist, that's how she was approached in her attack. So that's very triggering for her. So there's all different ways. I think there most certainly is levels to, to trauma, I'm sure. sure. And when they're dealing with a healthcare professional, some people's trauma is probably, yeah, I'm sure there's different types of trauma, but there's also ways that are treatable, that are easier to treat maybe. Right. Someone who went through the trauma of a car accident or you know, it might be easier to rationalize with them through therapy of like, hey, that's a one in a million thing. The likelihood of that happening to you again is very small you know, versus someone who is terrified, who was, let's say, sexually assaulted as a child and fears for not only their life still or intimacy issues with a partner, but also their children and working through them with their trauma is probably a lot more complex, right? So that's what I would say for me, that would be my perception of it. But again, it's all relative. And just because someone hasn't been through some crazy trauma doesn't mean that we have to go well, their feelings aren't valid. Their mental health concerns aren't valid. We can't do that. You know what I mean? We have to take it seriously. Sure. Because I'm sure even in your situation, though, too, it's like, you know, someone got the report on you. And I'm sure they, they, at times they were like either super interested in it or being like, I don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah. It's such a wild story, man. It's like, like I said, <laughs> like I just, I just commend you for being able to come on here, like, and just, be as open as you are with it and, and allow people to be this close to something that I feel like a lot of people would bury, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't even want to talk about that shit. There's a lot of exposure, obviously, when you come through with a story like that. And a lot of people are going to just want to ask you so many fucking questions like all the time. It's interesting you said that because I was thinking just last night about like my story and, you know, one of the things I was thinking is like, well, what if I, you know, my career path, right? Like, what if I chose to do something else or did this? And like, for, cause for years I was a working cinematographer, right? Like I got into the podcasting thing and because I always wanted to do a podcast and I got into being a YouTuber really heavily this year because it was like, that's what I wanted to do. And post pandemic, the entertainment industry is so screwed up. It's like, okay, I don't want to do this, but it just felt natural, right? But I thought like, what if I had pursued a different career? And what if I wasn't talking about all this? Because I got into the filmmaking side to tell the story, right? But it's like, well, what if after the story, I just continued doing this? Because when my movie came out, and especially like in 2020, when it like hit all the streaming services, I had friends that I had worked with in the entertainment industry that were just like, I just saw you on Hulu. What? Like, how did I never know this? I was like, because I never talked about it. You know, if you knew me really well, you knew like, okay, my dad killed my mom. I was adopted and I'm from Ohio. Like, that's it. You didn't know all the details. Right. People, like watch it or they hear the podcast and they're just like, there's a director I worked with and we were on the road like for two weeks together and she saw something on Facebook. She's like, I saw an interview with you on Facebook and I vaguely remember you talking about this years ago and saying you were going to make a movie, but I never thought you were going to actually do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> everybody's like, yeah, right. 
it's an amazing journey man i, I it's so one of a kind that it's like I, I can't even try to fathom putting any kind of relation to it yeah yeah like i'm happy that you're doing it because it does make you one in a million in a crazy weird way but also in a way that you're using it to help people which i find very admirable i just wanted to ask one last question i ask everybody this question at the end of every episode is are you happy today that's an interesting question because yeah. the short answer is yes i am i'm very happy the thing is it was when i look back on my life and i think a lot of people have trouble swallowing this despite all the horror and everything that i went through i wouldn't change it for anything because at the end of the day I genuinely like the person that I've become. And I feel that I took and harnessed the best of it. I think that was, you know, you talk about the outlier sort of situation on doing things and with your life and not succumbing to them. I think that was the thing for me is it was like, I just never wanted to look back at my life with regret. I didn't want to regret like not being an advocate on behalf of my mother, not pursuing justice for her not pursuing my father for that justice. You know, I never wanted to have any regrets whatsoever. And I think that that's a really important thing. And that has led me to this happiness that I have every day that I'm almost grateful for. I mean, I am grateful for what I went through because it's made me the person I am today. And I genuinely like that person. I love that. But it's just a, such a fascinating, fascinating uh, story. I'm like at a loss for words with this. It's like, you always see it on TV, but then when you finally get to talk to somebody and see how their mind works, at least just for like an hour, it makes it like just as more interesting to see that you're just a functioning member of society. We always internalize things, right? So when yeah. you see a story, it's like, what would you do in that situation? That's what everybody asks. And, and me, I'm like, I don't know, man. I think I'd be super fucked up. So like, you know what I mean? I'd be like, I think I would not be able to do any of these types of things. Where can everybody find? The podcast, where can they find you? Where can they find the film? I know so many people are going to want to check this out. So so you can find me. So all my social media is at Collier Landry, C-O-L-L-I-E-R-L-A-N-D-R-Y. You can find me at collierlandry.com forward slash links. Collierlandry.com is my website. You can find me on YouTube. My YouTube channel is at Collier Landry. I am on TikTok at Collier Landry. Check me out. Uh, the podcast is called the Survivor Squad, which is what I host with Tara Newell. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, where you get your podcast from, and the YouTube channel. Obviously, my other podcast is Moving Past Trauma. You guys know my name, but you guys need to go check out Collier Landry everywhere on the internet. You guys can find us at 101 OTC. You can find me at Danny Priori. Collier, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, tell Tara I said hello, please. I will do that. And Danny, thank you so much for having me. This is a fun conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!